for the last couple of weeks. We started out talking about how Mark was the beginning of the good news and how Mark, who wrote his gospel pretty much to a Roman audience, made his gospel account of Christ all about action, all about action, what Jesus did more than what Jesus said to demonstrate that he truly was the servant king who came from God. And so we looked at that. We looked at his baptism uh, we looked at him calling some disciples uh, to follow him, to become fishers of men. In fact, you could basically say that as we follow Jesus like they did, he will make us into something. He will make us into irresistible messengers of the good news. In fact, it's a product of following Jesus. In fact, when he called them to follow, it wasn't just to follow. When he called them, he called them to become something, people who partnered with his mission, who were fishers of men. Um, and that's what we should be doing under his authority. The truth is, all of us as humans on planet Earth, we are living under some kind of authority. Everybody. There's, there's nobody who is living without authority in their life. Let me give you some examples. Some people live uh, according to reason. Their authority is reason. And their thing is that I, I live the way that I live because I think. Now, how many know people who just base everything on reason? In fact, maybe they're not in church today because Christian faith doesn't make reason to them. And so they are basing all their decisions on reason. I think, therefore I am, is kind of their mission, right? And people who live under this governance of reason. There are others that live um, for experience. Their authority is experience. I live the way that I live because I feel. And they base what they do on feeling. And there's a lot of things you can feel today in, in the American culture, and they base all the decisions on what that feels. And if it feels good, it's right, right? Isn't that what we're being sold in our, in our Americas, especially today? Experience determines what I do, how I feel about. There's also those that live under the banner or the, the authority of culture. I live the way that I live because I want to fit in. And how many know that we all wrestled with that, especially in middle school and high school years when our whole objective was, I don't want to stick out, I want to fit in. And that some of that sticks with us into adulthood. And so we continue to live under the, the authority of culture that says, I'm going to do by B because that's what culture says and I want to fit in. There are also those that live under the authority of tradition. And they say, I live the way I live because I've always done it this way. Or maybe my family has always done it. With, and it's not a bad thing. There are some traditions that can be great. But some of you, if you live just the way you live because you've always lived that way, there's a challenge with you not changing. So you live under the authority of tradition. And because of that, you're change adverse. You don't want to change. And there's also those that live, though, under what I would call the authority of revelation. I live the way that I live because God says so. And as followers of Jesus, we're to live under the authority of that revelation because that revelation has a name. And his name is God. And he has given us two distinct things that we're to live under. And that is the written word, which is the Bible, and the living word, which is Jesus, his son. We have those as the authority. And what Mark is going to do today is he's going to paint for us a picture of the authority of Jesus. Even in the video that you watched, you watched Jesus minister with authority. So we're going to talk about today in Gospel, uh, Gospel of Mark chapter 1, the authority of Jesus. 
Now, one of the things we have to understand about the Gospels is that they, they kind of work together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, especially the synoptic Gospels, you, you kind of need to read them together. In fact, I would encourage you as a student of the Word to at some point in time buy what's called a synopsis of the Gospel or a synoptic Gospel. Because what it does is it takes the Gospel accounts and weaves them together into a story. So you can see the progressive life of Jesus. That helps kind of fill in the blanks. Remember, Mark doesn't share everything about Jesus. He has a reason why he's writing the way that he's writing to the Romans. And he wants to talk about, introduce right away the authority of Jesus. Because guess what? Romans get authority. They live under a culture of authority. So they get it. And he's painting a picture of why Romans ought to also live under the authority of Christ. Because in the Roman culture right now, it's against the law to be Christian. And Nero's army is hunting you down to persecute you as a Christian. So for them, the question is, really, who should be the authority of my life? It's going to be a lot easier for me if I submit to Nero because I kind of like my head or I kind of like living, right? I mean, they, they have this understanding. His power is very real. It's persecuting, but he's painting a picture of the authority of Jesus. And the reason he wants to anchor that there is for us to see it. But to get a picture of what is happening in the life of Jesus, who we're following, we saw in the Gospel of Mark, it began with Jesus coming to be baptized by what? By John the Baptist. And following that baptism, he goes off in the wilderness and he's tempted by the, by the enemy. And then we see him, according to Mark, calling some disciples to follow him. But when we look at the life of Jesus, what basically happens, there's a few pieces of his life that are missing that kind of help to fill in the story of Jesus that Mark doesn't capture, but Matthew and Luke kind of, and John weave some of those in to help us fill it in. So here's kind of where we've been with Jesus. So he was baptized, he was tempted. Following that temptation, he kind of comes back in from the wilderness, and John the Baptist sees him again. And he announces something about Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And at that point, guess what happens? John's popularity moves to the background. And in fact, one of his disciples, two of them in particular, leave John and start to follow Jesus. And so John knows his place. He announces who Jesus is. And then we see Jesus pick some disciples to follow him, some of the first disciples that will follow him. And at this point, he has kind of a band of four, <laughs> there it went, four disciples that are following Jesus. He hasn't really picked the 12 yet, but he has these four that follow him. And then these four join Jesus as he goes to a wedding. And in that wedding, he performs his first public miracle of turning water into wine at the wedding feast. Then following that wedding feast, he goes down to Jerusalem because it's Passover and every Jewish man goes to Jerusalem, which is kind of their Mecca, right? Their center of spiritual life to celebrate Passover. And he goes down and the first thing he does is he cleanses the temple of all the merchants who are making profit in the temple courts. This is one of two cleansings of the temple. He does one at the beginning of his ministry and one at the end of his ministry. And he upsets people with his passion for his father's house to be a house of prayer. And then from that point, he has this little private meeting with a guy named Nicodemus. John chapter 3, which becomes a very popular verse, especially 316, for God so loved the world, right? He has this little interaction with Nicodemus where he says, hey, Nicodemus, you want to be a follower? You want to really live? You must be born again. 
introduces this concept of being born again from above, the Holy Spirit coming and breathing a new life into us. And then from there, he heads back home to Nazareth. So Jerusalem is down kind of in the south part, and he goes back north to what would be his hometown of Nazareth, a journey kind of like from maybe Eugene to Portland, all right? And he finally comes to Nazareth. And on his way to Nazareth, though, he stops by a well and ministers to a woman who was very sinful in the, in, in the Samaria region. And you might recall the story where he offers this woman living water. If you knew who was talking to you, the one who offers you living water. So he ministers to her on his way home to Nazareth. And when he gets to Nazareth, he becomes a teacher. He's well known now, a couple of miracles that he's done, and he becomes a teacher. And so he's invited to teach in the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth. And he reads from the prophet Isaiah what becomes kind of Jesus' mission. The spirit of the servant God is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news. And he shares this and basically rolls the scroll up and says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Some folks are amazed. Most of them not very happy with Jesus. They push him out of the synagogue. They take him to the edge of a cliff in Nazareth to throw him over the cliff. And the Bible just simply says that he walked out among the midst of them. Whatever that looked like, I don't know if he vaporized or if Jesus was beamed to somewhere else. We don't know exactly what that looked like, but he escapes from, from Nazareth where he's rejected in his own hometown. And so these are the things that have been happening. And then from that, he leaves Nazareth because it's probably not the best place to be, right? He goes to Capernaum. So the Sea of Galilee is a large um, lake, basically is what it really is. And Capernaum's on the northwest part of this lake. And it's a uh, popular fishing city. And that's where he calls now Peter, Andrew, James, and John, really, again, to be his followers. And then from that point, we jump right in now to Mark chapter 1. So grab your Bibles, because in Mark chapter 1, we're going to look at one day in the life of Jesus, just one day in the life of Jesus' ministry, but it is an action-packed day full of a demonstration of his authority. And here's kind of the, the big idea before we even jump into Mark chapter 1, verse 21. Here's what our takeaway is going to be from all of this, and it's this, that Jesus deserves absolute authority over all of my life. That is the thing we're going to leave Mark 1 with today, is he truly does deserve that place. I don't know where you're at with Jesus, but what we're going to see in Mark 1 is he deserves that absolute authority over every area of your life. We'll come back and talk about that here in just a moment. But in Mark chapter 1, verse 21, we immediately see his authority in teaching. His authority in teaching. Look at it. We see it in Mark 1, 21 and 22. You can grab your Bibles or smart device or whatever you got to follow along. We do use the Bible app. Um, we also have a church app you can use and notes we push to you through our church app. So all those ways we want you to connect to the Bible. It says, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. And the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Okay, I want to pause there just for a minute. So it says that they were in Capernaum, this city of about 10,000 people. It's the hometown, by the way, of, of Andrew and Peter. This is their hometown. 
And it's a multicultural city. There's Romans, there's Jewish, there's Gentiles, a great place for Jesus to kind of launch his ministry there. It's also on a major highway or trade route into that whole region of Galilee, so it serves as a great place for him to launch his ministry from. And Capernaum actually becomes the base of operations for Jesus and his disciples. And it says that he goes to the synagogue. Now, what is a synagogue? How many have been to a synagogue before? I have. I, I encourage you to do it at least once in your life. I went to the synagogue up in, in Salem. It was part of my uh, Bible college days. I had to go observe other religions, and so I went to the synagogue, and it was very interesting to see what the Jewish faith does today. But a synagogue um, was actually a kind of a church building, if you would. In most Jewish communities, all you had to have were 10 Jewish men that were 13 years or older. If you had that many in your village, you could have a synagogue. And the synagogue was built as a place where people would come and study the law. Now, here's why. If you rewind history, Israel, remember they had their land of promise, they had Jerusalem, they had the temple, they had the sacrifices, but they were disobedient to God and God said, hey, if you disobey me, I'm going to kick you out of the land of promise, and that eventually happened. They were exiled into Babylon. They were away from their temple, so how are they going to worship God? The temple was destroyed. There were no sacrifices. What would happen now to their Jewish faith? And so what happened is they kind of shifted during exile to a focus on the law, and they had teachers of the law who remind them of the stories of their history. And that's how the synagogue started. Dates back to about 450 BC to the era of Ezra. And he began to establish this idea of teaching the law. And now it became part of Jewish life. There were synagogues in most Jewish communities. And during the week, it was the school for boys. Sorry, girls, you didn't get to go to school. But the Jewish boys would go to synagogue. They would learn the Jewish faith. And once they were 13, they'd become a man in their Jewish faith. And then they would also go then on Sabbath, which Sabbath is Friday night to Saturday night. So Sunday is not Sabbath, although as Christians, we worship on Sunday because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. But there are those who still worship on the Sabbath. They, work, they go to church on Saturday. Maybe you have some friends. That's what they do. They go to church on Saturday. Um, that's just the Sabbath day. And so here he is now in a synagogue. And what would happen is the synagogue, the purpose of the synagogue was to pray, was to hear the law, and then to have somebody interpret the law. So it's kind of like what we do at church today, but we gather to worship, to sing songs to God. They didn't really sing that many songs in synagogue in this era. They focused on prayer and Bible study, and their Bible was the Old Testament. And so there would be a person who would be handed the scroll, they would read, and then they would expound on what it meant. But for the most part, it was pretty boring because they would just talk about law, and then one of the scribes would interpret what the law means. So how fun would that be? Let's go to Leviticus and talk about it for a while, the law. And I think people's eyes would glaze over, and they would just go, oh boy, wasn't it good to be in synagogue today, right? So that's what it was all about. Normally, it was just kind of routine. Until this day, Jesus is invited to come be the visiting rabbi. Most synagogues didn't have a built-in pastor or teacher. They would use traveling rabbis. And Jesus was well known enough now that he was invited as a teacher to come and teach. And the difference was he taught with power. I mean, when he talked, it wasn't like going to uh, some kind of philosophy class at university where 
you just can't wait till this class is over, right? When he taught, people hung on his words. They taught with power. They have never heard anybody teach this kind of way before. And it said, in fact, compared to the scribes, his teaching was powerful. So normally the teachers were scribes or Pharisees, and basically what their job was, they were like scriptural attorneys. So their job was to copy the Jewish text to make sure it was accurate. All their Bibles would get copied, so there'd be scrolls, copies of scrolls, made as predates photocopying, right? They would handwrite these things out. And in the process, they'd become professional interpreters of the law. So you can imagine, again, how boring that might be to just have somebody regurgitate law for you. But here's Jesus, and he's not using the law necessarily. In fact, his message usually was the good news, a fulfillment of the law. So when he preached, people were like, whoa, what is this? This is like powerful. This is new teaching. And the reason I think that this is important for us to hear, especially today, is because his authority, as he taught, really came from the Spirit of God. Remember, he was baptized. The Holy Spirit came upon him. Yes, he's the Son of God, but he ministered under the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the prophet Isaiah said, the Spirit of the sovereign God is upon me. That's the way that Jesus taught, and that's how he ministered, and he speaks for God, not just about God. He speaks actually for God, and here's the good news. Your faith as Christians today, it's not based on some powerless moral teaching, okay? The law, friends, can't save you. It's instructional. It's informational. It's not redemptive. The law can't save you, and aren't you so glad that that's not how we base our faith today? It's based on instead the very person and the power of Jesus and his word. And when he spoke, he didn't have to quote rabbis before him to have authority. He spoke under the authority of God and people listened. Now, imagine sitting under the teaching of Jesus. I think it would be super cool to sit under the teaching of Jesus. But here's the thing. As followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit continues to be that powerful teacher who is at work in your life as you read the Bible and as you listen for the leading of the Holy Spirit. That same authoritative teaching is available to you today. But do you submit to it? I mean, even Jesus talked about the work of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14. It's on the screens for you. Verse 25, he says, all of this I have spoken while still with you. So he's talking about all these things that he has taught them. But he says, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, what's his job going to be? Look, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Guess who our teacher is today? Yes, we have the written word of God, the living word, but we also have the Holy Spirit at work within our lives. And as we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit does some things within our soul that enlightens and opens our heart and our eyes to the message of the gospel of Jesus. It's living, it's active, it's not stale. In John 16, listen to what Jesus says. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. You get that? He'll speak only. Who's he hearing it from then? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. 
And when the Holy Spirit dwells in you, he is there to guide you, to teach you, to be an advocate, to sit under, as it were, the teaching of Jesus within your own very being. Friends, we have that powerful teaching here today at work in us. But here's the question. Do you regularly submit to the authority of Christ's teaching in his word and by the Holy Spirit? Do you? Or is this the only time you come under the sound of God's word? Do you submit to the authority of the Holy Spirit at work in your life when he speaks to you about things that you need to change, when he corrects you about sinful areas, when you're reading God's word? Are you submitting to what the Spirit of God is saying when he's saying, Kelly, this part of your life is not in alignment with the word of God? Do you listen to that and yield? I have to do that. And friends, it's not easy either. But I have to be willing to submit to the authority of Christ's teaching from the work of God the word of God, and the Holy Spirit within us. But not only does he have authority to teach, let's go on in verse 23 of Mark 1, we see his authority over demons. Let's look at it. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, I just want to pause there for a second because I think this is interesting. A man was in their synagogue Possessed by an impure spirit. Here's the question. How long has he gone to synagogue? I mean, he's in synagogue, so he's probably a Jew or a proselyte Jew, which means he was Gentile who got baptized into the Jewish faith. And he's sitting under the teaching of the law, bound by a demon. You know what this kind of tells me? The law is not able to save this man. Because the only thing the law can do is show him what is right and wrong? It's not doesn't have the power to save him. So those scribes who open the scrolls and they expound the law, this man all the while is bound by a demon until a power greater than the teaching of those scribes comes into his close proximity and begins to teach with power. And that man becomes very uncomfortable. Now, where do these impure spirits come from? Where do demons come from? Why does God allow them to have activity in the world today? Long story short, what we see in Revelation chapter 12 is that basically before the world was created, God always existed, and God had created angelic beings, and they were together. God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they were always, okay? They always were, always are, always will be, and there was an angelic host that would be there to do the work of the Father and to worship God. And one of those angelic beings was named Lucifer. And he, for whatever reason, I mean, we don't have the whole story on this part of it, but decides to rebel against God. And he wants to exalt his throne above God. And he has a pretty strong following of angels. The Bible, Revelation says, a third of the angelic host. Friends, that's a lot of angels. Follows Lucifer. God kicks them out of heaven, so to speak, from his presence, and they're allowed to dwell here. Now, we know they're already defeated by Jesus on the cross. We're going to look at that here momentarily. They're already defeated, but why would he allow them to work? Because in this world, there had to be evil and good. There had to be. And it was that presence of evil in the Garden of Eden that tempted Adam and Eve away from God toward evil. See, the reason we have evil and good is we need both. We need the evil to show us what evil is, right? I mean, I talk to atheists about this who don't want to believe in the absolute truth. 
And the question is, well, then what do you base good on? I mean, if there is no measuring stick, you have to have evil and you have to have good. And God has allowed it temporarily. But the good news is, Revelation shows us, it's got a shelf life, all right? But they were allowed to be at work. And here is this demon who calls out Jesus in a synagogue gathering. I think it's interesting. Demons knew who Jesus was. People didn't really recognize who he was, but he calls him out as Jesus of Nazareth by his name, and then he says, the Holy One of God. So he knows who he is, both God and man. Calls him by those titles. Now, why does he call them out? Because there was kind of a, in the ancient culture, there was kind of a belief that if you could call out the name of your adversary, you had authority over them. And so his ploy to call out Jesus was a ploy to have Jesus submit to his authority. But Jesus would have had nothing to do with it, right? Would have nothing to do with it. In fact, we see in the passage here in, how did I get to Matthew? Let's go to Mark. We see what Jesus does. Verse 25, be quiet, said Jesus sternly. You know the actual translation of that? The Greek touches on it in the American language. The best way we would say it is shut up. And I know we don't say that in church, but that's basically what he said in synagogue. That was the equivalent of what he said in Greek. Come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Nobody had ever seen this before. The demons were always there. The Pharisees had some kind of thing that they would do to exercise demons but never with this kind of authority, spoken authority, and boom, the man was set free. And it says, verse 27, the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching, and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region. Now, I think what's interesting here is we have to understand that in Jesus' ministry, he did not come to destroy demons. Now, it was a byproduct of his mission, especially when those demons would get in the way. But can I remind you that if Jesus had settled for just being an exorcist, it might make great stuff for a rated R movie or a video game. But that was not why he came. He came to abolish evil and sin, period. Not dance with the demons, right? He will win every time, hands down. That's not the issue. He didn't get distracted from that. We're going to come back to that here a little bit later. But he came to abolish the power of evil. And said, so let's look at it. Revelation 1.18. This is post-Jesus' death, resurrection. He says, I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. The reason that is important is the one who holds the keys is the authority. And because of Christ's death and resurrection, he has authority over death. That's why we as his followers have eternal life, because he has the keys and the authority over death, but also over Hades, the dwelling place of the wicked. He has the keys, which means he has the authority. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us as humans, children of God, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Man, get this. So Jesus comes 
Demons are expelled. Through the cross, he ultimately vanquishes the power of the enemy, renders him powerless. Why is this important for us today? Because Paul tells us, in this world today, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You might think you're fighting with your friend or your family member, or you might think you're fighting with your boss or fighting with culture, but the Bible says you're not really wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. You know what? Here's the truth. There is still a very real demonic realm at work in our world today, and it's not going to get any better. It's not going to get any better until finally the Lord vanquishes entirely. Revelation shows us what the end looks like for them. But in the meantime, guess what? We have authority in Christ over this. In fact, it's Paul who says, resist the devil, and he must flee from you. We have authority. So Jesus had authority over demons. And the reason that was important for us is because we too, as his children, as his co-heirs in Christ, his followers, we have authority. And so when you feel that evil rising up against you, guess what? You don't have to fear. Because Jesus said, greater is he that is in me than he that's in this world. And friends, we have, as Christ did, authority over that. But we have to know where our authority comes from and be under that authority. But it moves on from there. He also has authority over sickness. In Mark 1, 29, we see it. And following, look what it says. As soon as they left synagogue, so a pretty powerful day at church. Nobody had ever seen that before. They leave synagogue, and they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. So they lived in Capernaum. And Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. They immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her. Now notice what they immediately told Jesus about her. I mean, there's just something right there that we need to pay attention to. Who'd they go to first? Jesus. Friends, here's the truth. When we're facing sickness, I'm glad for doctors, but my first call should be Jesus, who is the great physician and the healer. They go to Jesus immediately and, and talk about her. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and helped her up. And the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Now, why would this make it in the passage? Why, why would Mark record this? Now, look at some stuff in the Bible. I go, why, why, why is it in there? And what was it? Because Jesus wanted a good pot roast, and, you know, she was down, so couldn't make the good after-church pot roast. And so he puts it in the Bible. I mean, what's the point? Here's the thing we don't often understand about Scripture until we put it all together. In the Old Testament, Fever, burning with fever was a sign of God's judgment upon you because you had violated the covenant law. Now, we don't know what happened with Peter's mother-in-law, but the Jewish people believed that fevers like this were the wrath of God, and nobody could make it better. And there were people in this era who would die of fever. We see fever today as a symptom of something else, right? Fever is a sign something else is going on in your body. In this culture, people died of fever because they believed this was the wrath of God and only God could undo the fever. You see where this is going? So here comes Jesus. Peter's mother-in-law is with the fever. He rebukes it, takes her by the hand, and the fever is gone. And people are kind of going, wait a second, I thought only gods could reverse the curse of God. And certainly he was the son of God. Power over sickness, power over disease. And it says, by the way, look at what she does immediately. What does she do? 
The fever left her and she began to make the pot roast. She went to go wait on them. She got up, she began to serve. This is what this tells me, friends. We may not have fever, but all of us have been broken by sin. The wrath of God poured out on us by our own sinfulness. We've been set free from Jesus. Our automatic response should be service. When we are set free from Jesus, we can't help but serve and get involved in serving his mission. She immediately gets up. I think God restores us for a purpose, not to feel good about our Christian faith, but to actually serve. We are saved to serve. That's something that we see. But moves on in verse 32. That after evening, that evening after sunset, so this is the end of Sabbath, Saturday night, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and even possessed, because the law wouldn't allow them to do that prior to sundown. They couldn't bring sick people to Jesus because the law forbid them to do that. Isn't that just terrible? <laughs> that's just the way, that's what they lived under, right? So here's Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door. That, that's probably hyperbole, because that would be like 10,000 people outside of Peter's house. But it says, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases and also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So what do we see? Word of Jesus already traveled. The guy that was set free in the synagogue, folks are coming now. They're flocking to the door of Peter's house to have Jesus minister to these that are coming. And he heals them all and he rebukes the demons and he silences. Why does he put gag orders on the demons? They're actually saying things that are true, right? You look at the synagogue account, Jesus of Nazareth, correct. Holy one of God, correct. Isn't this good press, Jesus? Why would he silence the voice of the demons? Here's why. By silencing them, one, he demonstrates his authority over them, okay? But two, he wanted the people to believe that he was Messiah, not because of testimonies of demons, (laughs) but because of what he is doing and how he is serving and how he is living, And he also wanted to reveal his identity as Messiah on his own timeline. He knew his time was short, but if people began following him for the wrong reasons, then he would mislead them of why he came. Again, he didn't come to be a healer. He didn't just come to be the one who would set people free from demons. He came to be the savior of the world. And if he missed that, and if people missed that, then they came to him for the wrong reason. And people still do that today. But Mark's point was, no, stop. Look at Jesus has authority, but now I want you to watch the one who has ultimate authority. Watch him as he serves. And he's serving those that are broken and demon-possessed, and he sets them free. All night, he's up healing those that come to the door. To serve the needs of others was never beneath Jesus, who had ultimate authority. He still uses authority to serve. Let's look at it, what he says in Mark 10. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. I mean, that sounds great, like a great mission, right? But he proved it that day, before Mark 10, that he came to serve. Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then from that point, we see Jesus' key to his authority. In Mark 1.35, So this is still within that 24-hour period of time, right? So he just has this whole session of healing and setting people free late into the evening. And it says that early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he 
prayed. Now, how many of you are morning risers? You like to get up in the morning, right? Not many, not many. So listen, Jesus, this part of the day when he got up, seasonally what was happening in time, this was somewhere between three and six o'clock in the morning. So think about it. He had just spent hours ministering to the broken and the sick, the diseased. He gets up at three to six, somewhere in there, and leaves to go pray. Why would Jesus, the son of God, right? Why would he have to go pray? I mean, he's like, he is God, right? Why does he have to go pray? Because we see this happen multiple times in the gospels where Jesus pulls off to spend time in prayer and in silence and commune with the father. And oftentimes that was interrupted by his disciples who were like, hey, Jesus, there's more people. Come on, let's go. But he sought this time of intimacy with his father. And during his ministry on earth, he was in constant prayer with his father. Why? Because that is where his authority came from. We'll look at it again here in a moment in John chapter 14. We'll get there. But he prayed, and there were critical times that he prayed. This, in fact, Luke or Mark records three times that Jesus prayed. He prayed more than three times, okay? So don't go, well, hey, you know, all of his life he prayed three times. I think I'm okay, all right? It just shows us the three times that he prayed. One of them was right after this miraculous season of healing the demon-possessed and the sick. He goes to pray. The next one is after he feeds the multitude, the 5,000 through a miracle of multiplying fish and bread, it says he goes off to pray. Why would he pray on the heels of great success? Because he wanted to stay on mission. See, success can be tricky because success makes you want to settle. And if Jesus was doing a great job being successful, healing the sick, casting out demons, feeding the multitude, successful ministry, it'd be very tempting to go, this feels good. I got crowds following me. I don't, need a, I don't need to go to a cross. I don't need to die for these people. I can just keep feeding them, keep setting them free, keep healing them. What a great gig. He doesn't. So he prays for strength to stay on mission. The, next, the last time Mark records his praying, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's about to be arrested and go to the cross. What does he pray for? strength to be on mission. Friends, we can learn some things from Jesus, can't we? Times like this, even though he's God incarnate, he talks to his father. He seeks the father's strength to stay on mission. How many of us know we need the same? Because success or the ploys of this world will continue to pull us off mission. And we need to be people who say, Father, I submit to the authority that you have over my life to keep me on mission. Don't let me get distracted of why I'm here today. Yes, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a grandfather, I'm a pastor, but keep me on mission of seeing people come to know you. That's the same mission we all have. And that's what he prayed, strength to fulfill his mission. In Mark 14, or John 14, we see this tightness between the Father and Jesus. Look at what he says. He says, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say, I do not speak on my own authority. So there's that key word. Where is it coming from? Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. 
So believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Now, here's what, here, pay attention to what he does here now. Because he says, Father and I, that's my source of authority. Look at what he says now. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. What's happening? A transference of authority. Jesus knew where his authority came from, and the key was communion with the Father. Guess what he's passing on to us? He's saying, look, you're going to do great things too because I go to the Father, and guess who he's sending? The Holy Spirit to be with us, the power of God at work in our life to be on mission, and we will do greater things because we know the key to our authority. And finally, what we see in Mark chapter 1 concerning his authority, we see that Jesus refuses to misuse his authority. Let's look quickly. Mark 1.36. Simon and his companions came to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That's why I have come. So we traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Now, get this. This is interesting. You don't really think about this when you're reading scripture, kind of in a Bible through a year kind of thing. But we have to unpack what's happening here. Jesus has pulled away from the attraction of all the people to be with the Father and so what happened is sometime in that morning, maybe at sun up, people began to come to the house. They heard about Jesus. There's this guy in town. He's a miracle worker. Let's go see him. He might make you better. So they come to the door, and Peter answers the door, and they're like, hey, where's Jesus? So he's like, hang on. It's like, I'll go get him. And he goes, and Jesus isn't there. And he goes, finds him. He's praying. And Peter's like, what are you doing here? We got crowds of people back at the house. We got a pretty good thing going here, Jesus. Leverage your success and do more cool things here. But what does Jesus say? I'm going to go preach the gospel somewhere else. That doesn't make any sense. Human nature says you got a crowd, you got a following, you got a good thing going, you ride that for a while, right? Put up a platform, bring in the bands and the sound system, the lights, and have a real good show, Jesus, because that's what you want. People gathered. He said, no, that's not what I want, because I know they're coming to me for the wrong reason. They're not coming for truth. They're coming for a touch. I didn't come here to relieve their pain. I came to save them from their sin. This is the gospel I must preach. Now, with his preaching, there was continual signs and wonders, but he went elsewhere. He was not going to settle. Here's the deal. The gospel is not static. It will not stay in one place. He said, I got to go. I got to preach somewhere else because my point is not to make people feel good. My point is to be their savior. And friends, how many times have we come to Jesus to feel good about something? rather than to come to him under the banner of who he is. Yes, he's the healer of men's bodies. I don't reject that. But here's what's more important. That's temporal. Okay, our bodies are temporal. But he came to be the savior of our souls. And friends, that's eternal. That's why he came. That's why he had to go and preach. He was not going to allow his authority to be funneled into a healing ministry that gets crowds who just want to feel good. That's not why he came. That would have been a lesser mission 
than the reason that he came. He had authority to preach good news, to go to that cross to become the savior of the world. And here's the thing for us, friends. We also cannot settle. We've been given a mission along with authority. Matthew 28, 18 to 20 talks about it, where it says that Jesus came to them and said, all authority, there's that key word again, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why could he say that? Because he did the Father's mission, he died, he rose again, all of heaven's authority is with him, which the implication is, I am imputing my authority on you. For a reason, what is it? To go and make disciples. Guess what, friends? We're missing it if we think that God's salvation in our life is just for us to feel good to safely arrive at death, or to come on Sundays and listen to preaching, if this is all it is, then we're missing it. We are called and empowered to do something. And that something is the mission of Christ, to see people come to know him. Friends, again, a byproduct of your salvation is that you have a passion to see people, your family, your friends, people in your community to come to know to Jesus, come to know Jesus. And guess what? You have authority to do that, given by God. But what are you using your authority for? To feel better? To eke out a Christian existence? Jesus knew where his authority came from. It was the Father, and the Father had a mission. And he wasn't going to misuse that power or settle. He was going to be about his father's mission. Friends, we have the same co-mission as Jesus. And it's called the Great Commission. So that reminds me that Jesus deserves the absolute authority over all of my life. We saw him have power in the way that he taught and how the Holy Spirit still is that powerful teacher within us if we submit to the living word of God and the written word of God under the power of the Holy Spirit. We saw how he has authority over evil. And friends, we too wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers that are demonic. And maybe you have felt those at work in your life. Maybe they're unraveling your home, and destroying your family or your marriage. Then we have the authority to speak against the work of evil, only given through fellowship with the Father and that union with him by the power of the Holy Spirit. We saw his authority over sickness. And friends, I'm going to call up Jesus first every time and ask for his touch on my life or my kid's life, even before we go to the doctors. Because I believe he is still a healer today and he has power over sickness. And that is still true today. That is in the atonement of Jesus is our healing in our bodies. And we can pray with confidence for our friends and our loved ones that God can still do that work today. But we're never going to misuse his authority. We're going to know it comes from union and communion with the Father. So friends, are you under that kind of authority in every area of your life? That means spiritual, yes. But that means the physical, the sexual, the emotional, every aspect of your life. Is he the absolute authority over it? Because he deserves it. And we should yield to that. So let's pray. Jesus, right now in this room, you know each one of us. You know there's some authority over our life, something that we truly give ourselves to. And it might be reason. It might be the culture. It might be our own tradition. It might be feelings and experience. But you're calling us to live under the power of revelation of who you are. 
that Jesus, you are the ultimate authority over every area of our life, and you deserve that place as our Lord. But I'm afraid some of us have just looked to you as Savior to get us out of our problems of sin, but we've not submitted to you as Lord. So I pray right now in this place that we would see where are we under the authority of Jesus? Are there areas of our life that we are keeping under our own control or the control of something else and not bringing it under your lordship? And I pray right now each one of us in this room would recommit to you, Jesus. You deserve that place. Maybe there are those today and even here, Lord, that have not made a commitment to follow you. I pray that right now in this moment, they would recognize their need of a savior who didn't just come to make them feel better, but came to transform the way they live their life. And when we give ourselves to that kind of passion and power, then we will live a victorious life that you've called us to. So thank you for that. We recommit to you right now that you would be that Lord and authority over our lives, that you deserve that place over my physical body, my emotions, my sexuality, over every area of my life, you deserve that authority. And so I place myself willingly underneath that today for your glory. And in doing that, then I know I'll be about your mission, that my family, my friends, my coworkers, my community will see that in me there is an authority to love and be compassionate and gracious, to be irresistible as we desire to make people followers of Jesus. So help me, Lord, to be that. Each one of us in this room, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.